This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pograin Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Knight's Black Reveal. Gideon and Longknife. The Missing and the Lost. And Time Incorporated versus the Iowa Caucus. Welcome to the island you only think you remember. Welcome to the island is the first adventure anthology for the third edition of the Over the Edge RPG. It features four original storylines by award-winning authors, each with hooks for different character types, making it easy to bring the action to your campaign when and where it's needed. Launch brand new stories, add intriguing complications to existing arcs, or create exciting one-shots that bring the weird to your gaming table. Take a road trip with an ominous twist. Overthrow the government. Explore the place you only think you remember in Welcome to the Island. It's available now from Atlas Games. Learn more at atlas-games.com backslash over the edge. Or follow the link in the show notes. The show notes you only think you remember. The thump of dice, the rattle of miniatures, and the crunch of Doritos tell us we're once more in the ultra-swank confines of the... Oh, but wait a minute. If I rub the face of this uh, miniature with its robust complexion, underneath its face is pale and fraught with the doom of death. And these dice, uh, once I take a better look at them, they seem uh, inside the D20s. The D20 outside wrapper crumbles away and they're just humble, ordinary, uh, austere D6s. And, and why Peter Frampton, he's literally coming alive from the uh, gatefold uh, copy of his album because uh, uh, he turns out to be the Lord of the Undead in this scenario because beloved Patreon backer uh, Peter McAvaney asks, what advice would you give to a GM who wants to run Knight's Black Agents without revealing ahead of time that there are vampires uh, to preserve the surprise and assuming player trust isn't at issue. Uh, so uh, uh, Peter has anticipated what the f- first two to three minutes of our answer would be and has has scrubbed past it. Not Peter's first rodeo. Is there another version of the gumshoe reels that I could hand out to the players at the beginning of the campaign as a cover? And uh, that one's a little tricky because uh, the other ones all have strong other genre flavoring. Yeah. So I, I guess um, possibly a handout of your Moondust Man, you know, a printout of Moondust Man or something like that, because if you have Mutant City Blues, they will wonder, why aren't there people with superpowers and right. why aren't we cops? And, and uh, if they have Fall of Delta Green, they'll wonder, why don't we have cell phones? <laughs> <laughs> yes. And uh, the Esoterrorist shares with... Knights Black Agents is sort of uh, um, Tom Clancy modern day uh, setting, but at the same time, there's even worse monsters than vampires in that. So I think you might just have to disguise the copy of. Uh, I'm I'm looking at the PDF. You might announce to your unsuspecting players. So aside from that uh, easy bit of subterfuge, or or not easy as we just explained, uh, how do you start? Uh, doing the reveal. I mean, I, I did, uh, to, to, to close this off, I did try to use the word vampires as little as I possibly could in the player half of the book. It's, it's snuck in a couple of times, and there is a skill called vampirology, which you are 
kind of stuck with uh, if you use a pre-printed character sheet, but you can monkey with that on the PDF. And in theory, you can um, take the PDF of the player's guide. Actually, I should recommend this to Pelgrane. Uh, we should do a redacted player's guide that just has a black bar over the word vampires wherever it appears. That'd be kind of fun um, just for the, for the player's half. Uh, but until that happy day, yeah, just redact it yourself with a marker or uh, with a PDF editing software of your own favorite kind. Uh, moving forward from that, because again, uh, it uses a lot of specific uh, to itself gumshoe rules like cherries that it would be a shame to have the players not build their characters with that in mind. But assuming that you have players who uh, haven't heard of the game and trust you and are willing to run from PDF notes and all the other assumptions we're making to get to the meat of the question, the way that I would do it is by saying we're doing a spy game and uh, your spies, uh, your burn spies, just like in Ronin or in uh, Burn Notice or whatever, and you're doing adventures and you're doing uh, shadow run style heists, except with no magic uh, because it's regular times. You're, you're doing Mission Impossible style heists and, and activities. And it's up to you, the director, then to come up with a number of heists that will show off the system, teach people how to uh, get comfortable with gumshoe and with their characters being Jason Bourne levels of confidence. And ideally that will also, once you make the big reveal of vampires, not seem like wasted time, will, you know, sort of flash forward and say, oh, that's why that guy only met us in the parking garage at night. It wasn't just because he's, you know, seen too many Alan Pacula movies. It's because he's seen too many Dracula movies, for God's sake. <laughs> And, and so I think that, um, the way to do it is just to sort of, you know, uh, live your cover, as we say in spy times, insist you're running a Mission Impossible style game, have some Mission Impossible style missions, set stuff up, get ready to have the questions that they solve in the first batch of investigations, then take on new complexions in the second half. And that I think is the, is the most important part is to make the prologue feel connected to the rest of the campaign, unless you're running literally the, the, uh, the story of one mission in which these guys all discover there's vampires at the beginning. I'm assuming that, um, you're not doing that because you could do that without lying to the players. Um, you're doing it because you have some sort of great left turn planned for the first act turn and, and want to, uh, build up to that. Robin, do you have thoughts on, uh, hiding the vampires? So my first questions would to, uh, to myself would be how, long am I going to run this and how uh, long am I going to go before I do the reveal? Uh, do I have a set number of sessions in mind? Uh, if it's, if I'm figuring out, oh, this will probably go for 12, 15 sessions. You don't want to go. Uh, do you really want to go six sessions before you lower the boom? And how much do you set up? And one tricky thing is just, again, uh, attendance issues. Uh, when, it does does it feel like a cheat if you reveal the vampires on a weekend uh, when a couple of the players can't make it? Do you have to uh, keep running them on uh, sort of quotidian seeming uh, missions that, as you suggest, have uh, will acquire a completely different significance when they realize what's really going on? Um, do you leave it up to the players to uh, figure it out that if uh, uh, you know it, after the the say second scenario? Um, how long it goes until they figure out they're vampires could be just totally up to whether they investigate certain things. So uh, you might designate 
you know, if they go to this warehouse, uh, this uh, scenario, it's out of my hands. They, that's where they find the, uh, the blood bank in the rent field. But if they don't go there, if they keep pursuing other uh, avenues and figuring out, uh, and, and I guess the other thing is in Knights Black Agents, the idea is that you are being pursued. So mm-hmm. uh, do you run a bunch of uh, scenarios that are more typical spy missions where you haven't been burned yet? And the pursuit kick, kicks in when you find out there are vampires. That's certainly in the spirit of the uh, of the game. Uh, but the other option would be that you know you are pursued uh, throughout, and it's only when you f- figure out if you only you know it's like the equivalent of you know born figuring out treadstone. Then he knows there's vampires in this version. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. I guess one way to sort of be sneaky about that is to look at the sorts of investigative things that players don't like to do. And hide the vampires there. So the ways they like to get information, which is a general scuttlebutt in a neighborhood or finding a laptop, uh, mm. those uh, never lead to vampires. They nope. have to take bigger Nobody risks. the neighborhood believes in vampires and uh, vampires can't use digital key signatures. And so they uh, can't use laptops. Uh, yes, they, uh, <laughs> they, it's, it's, it's like mirrors. They can type all they want, but no, nothing shows up. Right. Well, that was in um, that was in uh, uh, the, the the amazingly great uh, spy show Ultraviolet that vampires uh, couldn't be recorded by media, uh, so they, they 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 their names would evaporate out of databases and stuff. So um, yeah, that's good. That's good fun. Um, I I, I want to sort of I don't want to promise reject because Peter is is as you say beloved, and he did try very hard to make me. He rejected not your, reject. your premise. He rejected my rejection of, of the premise, but I. My assumption is that if you're running a game nowadays for the kids today, they're going to Google what you're doing and they're going to learn it out. And I know that I suggested, well, just run it with a redacted Knights Black Agents. Do players, um, if they know there's something to spoil, I think they can be trusted to be pretty good and not spoil themselves. But if they don't know there's something to spoil, they'll just be on their... Uh, do players do that or do players not care? Robin, what's your, what's your thought about that? I, I'm uh, I think that's sort of a whole other tangent as to how much people want to spoil for themselves. Um, and I think one way to do that is it's, I think it's too much of a giveaway actually to make it seem like just a straight genre thing with no nerd genres added in so that if it's just a straight spy thing, People are going to go, oh, well, when's Cthulhu going to show up? Or when, right. when yeah. is this going to turn out to be a magical universe? Or uh, when is the alien invasion? And so it's less of a surprise when you do what is the obvious thing in role playing. And, oh, yeah, there's vampires. So mm-hmm. uh, one way to handle that is indeed to start with another nerd genre, which you then switch out, right? So that uh, they could be hunting kaiju, and then it turns out the real problem is vampires. Or uh, they're looking for UFOs, and, uh, you know, oh, those those aliens are looking awful wan, and you, you never see them at, in, in the daytime. It's just because, because their craft I prefer mean, the night. Uh, that's, that's sort of um, uh, the Delta Green solution, right? Is that, oh, no, we're hunting UFOs, and it's the Cthulhu mythos. Uh, that was classic Delta Green, less so now when there are fewer UFOs in pop culture. But yeah, I think that your idea of giving people Moondust Men and saying, all right, we're playing Moondust Men, but in modern times, and we're using Knights Black Agents because it's got good uh, modern time spy rules. And then the big flip is, nope, we're actually playing Knights Black Agents. You just were given Moondust Men as the cover. Ha ha ha. That's, 
that's a wild way to do it. But I, I think you're right. I think that players told they're just running Mission Impossible will say, but why? Uh, we could watch Mission Impossible. We can't watch a thing with spies versus vampires yet, except Ultraviolet. And I, and I think that the other thing that, uh, that sort of feeds to your, your, your two suggestions of know when you want it to show up and, and let the players, uh, sort of find it out at their own speed. I would say you can always put your thumb on that scale of let the players find out at their own speed. A worst case scenario, of course, they can be attacked not just by a Renfield who could be, oh, he's wearing a super suit or he's full of PCP or whatever excuse you give. But um, uh, they can be attacked by a straight up vampire and, you know, he turns into mist right in front of them. And that's literally impossible or whatever impossible supernatural vampire thing he can do. And if you're running conversely a game where there are biological vampires created in a Soviet lab somewhere or a Chinese lab and have gotten out and are causing troubles, uh, then you may never have the players actually twig that they're vampires and you're saying, no, I was just running this. Um, uh, uh, I was just using nice black agents for this cool game of bioterror. And uh, yeah, it turns out uh, that came in really handy um, anyway. Uh, and, and then they may never in game figure out that they're vampires, but the players may have figured out, Oh, these are like Morbius vampires. They're techno vampires. Right. I, cool. I think that's a, a good way to sort of attack the issue because you're coming up with something that's already a little bit nerd troped on top of the uh, spy genre. And so that they kind of relax and, oh, it's super soldier experiments. Okay. Because, you know, obviously uh, even Jason Bourne is a little weird science-y on top of yeah. what actual science can be or um, Orphan Black is another example. So, uh, yeah, I think like a, a weird science uh, thing where they they seem sort of like vampires and then and that could be once they find out oh yeah and, and of course they need blood serum order in order to survive and uh now it might still be not enough of a reveal in that case right that they just oh yeah it's weird science so it might i think in that instance if you really want it it's like oh yeah and where did they uh where did they get the original uh dna that this experiment is based on oh yeah romania and then, uh, oh. you know, reveal that there's a supernatural level under the, the weird science uh, level as part of the, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, well, yeah, these are super soldiers. And, yeah, they do occasionally, uh, you know, uh, roll their victims and drain them of blood. And that's a thing. It's like, oh, oh but what? They turned into mist? Huh? huh? That's <laughs> There's an occult tone. Yeah. What's, what's going on? So th that <laughs> might still be super, the, but it's not science anymore. Yeah. So in that yeah. way, you could sort of set it up so that. The, uh, you know, second or third episode, the uh, seemingly rational, weird science vampires are revealed and then uh, and then the players relax and think, OK, yeah, we've got our nerd trope. And then uh, then you hit them with a fuller whammy uh, uh, later on, because, of course, Night's Black Agents uh, gives people all sorts of different sorts of vampires. But I think most people uh, still kind of prefer the one where Dracula might show up. Yeah, I mean, he's 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 a he's a brand name for a reason. And and, and another possibility now that it, uh, now that we've talked it out is you could, in theory, say we're running this game of modern day, very very lo-fi superpowers. So it's like Captain America: The Winter Soldier, and you've got Mutant City Blues right in the mix. And it's like, yeah, you can buy two points worth of superpowers, or four points, or whatever little tiny small number you feel is is worthwhile. And yeah, you just inject it into your veins, and yeah, it begins red. But that you know, that's just the color of super science in the setting. And then the players discover, 
you know, two, three, four uh, missions in that, oh, yeah, we, uh, this mysterious fluid comes from Romania, dun, 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 and that the CIA was involved, and that's why they are building us in this program, and we're there to fight these Russian or Chinese super soldiers, but in fact, we're all full of vampire goo, and there's vampire conspiracies going on, and, and now trouble has ensued, but giving the players a little a little uh, superpowers as a treat is uh, a, an excellent way to distract them, I think, from the notion that, oh, right, you're actually, your real superpower is you're Jason Bourne or right. Bucky. And so to broaden out uh, the lesson to any game where you uh, want to pull this sort of uh, genre reveal partway through, I think you can apply that same bit of advice, which is make sure there's already something in it that seems to be the nerd part of the nerd trope. Uh, and that way they won't uh, twig uh, quite so uh, early and, and in each, you know, depending on what it is that you want to reveal, uh, you know, that uh, uh, if it's a biker saga that turns out to be werewolves, you could be, you know, have that. Oh, yeah, there's this strange cult and they're developing that the, the motorcyclists seem to be um, worshipping at this strange idol. And, uh, you know, so you could set them up to think, oh, yeah, it's a modern day supernatural adventure. And then what exactly the supernatural thing is, is still a, a surprise. But you can probably surprise them harder with what exactly is going on if you have a, uh, a, a red herring on top of that. And on that note, Ken, I think we should stop talking about spies yes. so that we can go and talk about spies. They tried to suppress it. They tried to contain it. They left it for months on a loading dock in Estonia. But it's finally out at the Pelgrane Press web store or a top retailer near you. The most ambitious project yet from gumshoe master Robin D. Laws. The Yellow King role-playing game. Six pounds and four books of uncanny and exciting innovation wrapped together in an enthralling slipcase. Inspired by Robert W. Chambers' classic tales of reality horror. Reality, you say? We've got four of them to drive your terrified players through. Bellapoc Paris, where art students navigate its absinthe-soaked demimonde, investigating gargoyles, vampires, and decadent alien royalty. The wars where weirdness-savvy soldiers fight for survival and gnosis on the eerie shifting battlefield of Europe's 1947 Continental War. Aftermath, where former partisans mop up the otherworldly remnants of the hundred-year tyranny they helped to defeat. This is normal now, our ordinary present day. Or is it? Spoiler, it is not. Featuring the debut of Quick Shock Gumshoe. Where physical injuries and mental shocks don't just tick down as abstract points. They haunt you as fiendish cards with debilitating effects and tricky discard conditions. Add it to your cart with Absinthe and Carcosa, a stunning full-color found object player-facing guide to 1890s Paris. And The Missing and the Lost, Robin's novel of intrigue and parageometry set in the aftermath reality. Get the Yellow King role-playing game. Before or it gets you. If cursed, do not return to store. For a limited time only, save up to $23 when you bundle Yellow King products at the Pelgrane Press store with the voucher code YELLOW. Get 15% off all Yellow King items when you combine the core game with Absinthe in Carcosa and or The Missing and the Lost. That's the voucher code YELLOW at pelgranepress.com slash shop.
the exciting opening segment that got your blood pumping, the John Barry sting, and the scenes of Aston Martin spinning out on the canopy air tell us that we're not in the tradecraft hut. So we have to go to a different hut. Uh, <laughs> that hut is, is very locked down. It's very serious. There's a retinal scan. There's fingerprints. This is a good hut. Much better hut. And best of all, when you enter the hut, you're not met by a guy in a Brooks Brothers suit and a supercilious gaze or even a guy in rumpled fatigues. You're met by a guy in a big Smokey the Bear hat because we're in a Canadian tradecraft hut and we're talking about the Mounties. Robin, please, please tell us that everyone in this story wears a big Smokey the Bear hat at all times. Uh, one of the major figures was previously in the musical ride before he becomes Canada's uh spy master who never quite uh, was. So uh, as I have sort of been teasing on Twitter, I have uh, started a new uh, series for my Thursday night game and it's called Canadian Shield. And it's an extreme nice. drift of fall of Delta Green. And uh, it's set in the 50s. And the first uh, uh, episode involves the Avro Arrow, uh, which we uh, don't want to talk about too much here because it might warrant its own segment. It's sort of the, I think it the, warrants its own segment. It's pretty fun and famous. Yeah, it's it's a it's the great Canadian lost cause. Uh, it happens to be a, a swanky uh, plane. B- uh, by the way, Robin, giant high fives for that title. Yes. Yeah, I'm sorry. That's just one of the great titles. Anyway, go yes. on. Um, and so, yeah. uh, as as one often does, I wanted to I wanted to start off by researching the Avro Arrow and think, well, what what could be added to to this to make it a genre thing? And of course, it turned out didn't have to add anything. There was yep. actually a spy sending plans uh, to the Russians who was working in the uh, in the Avro plant. So very quickly, the the Avro Arrow was a uh, an a, a bomber interceptor jet. Uh, that was uh, famously uh, a few years after in 59 winds up being uh, scrapped uh, by the uh, the then conservative government. And there's still lots of Canadian aviation enthusiasts who this day uh, consider it a terrible thing that not only was the, it scrapped, but all uh, evidence of the, of the planes was, uh, was destroyed. Uh, and that allows various leptonic uh, interpretations. But it turns out that uh, one of the employees who was, a uh, member of the Labour Progressive Party of Canada, uh, which was the legal wing of the illegal Communist Party of Canada, was working as a factory worker and making his own schematics, uh, not by having access to the plans, but just very cleverly sketching everything out. And he sketched the uh, the plane and its Arenda engine and the uh, missile control system. But the plans, uh, when they got to the Soviets, were blurred because it turns out um, and this is all from, a, if you want the full detail on this uh, a pretty amazing story, uh, it's from a book called Shattered Illusions, KGB Cold War Espionage in Canada. It's by Donald G. Mahar, uh, who for much of the book is a historian uh, surveying uh, this story that uh, mostly took place in the 50s. But then when you get to the last third, it turns out he's a major figure in the case and finds it a little difficult to write about himself in the in the third person, it becomes a little duller when he's on screen because he's trying to be too scrupulous about it. And the two guys, the two guys are named uh, Gideon and Longknife. Yes. Yeah, so Gideon. Speaking uh, is, of great titles. How are you? How are you sleeping on this, Robin? How is this not our lead? You don't have all the best <laughs> stuff at the beginning. There, there's there's lots of gold here. We're going to mine this for the rest of the segment. So the uh, the code name that the uh, RCMP security service assigned to uh, the uh, Soviet illegal who was running uh, the aforementioned uh, 
agent at the Avro plant and other agents as well, but that was the notable one, was codenamed Gideon. Uh, he came uh, to uh, Canada in 1951. Uh, he came in through the port of Halifax and uh, he had uh, a fake ID as he came in and then picked up other fake ID and assumed the identity of David Sobolov, who was a uh, Russian-born Canadian who moved back to Russia uh, at age 14. And so now uh, this person, uh, Yevgeny Brick, uh, was his name, is then uh, charged with the task of going around Canada, familiarizing himself with the uh, country in order to uh, be a properly unobtrusive illegal. And uh, and then he has to sort of create uh, this life of David Sovoloff that only went to age 14. He's got to create the fictional version of the whole rest of his life that brings him up to adulthood and eventually having a photography studio in Verdun, Quebec. But they he goes all around the, the country. And uh, this, of course, is the, the height of the Cold War. And the uh, the adversaries of uh, Soviet spies in Canada at, at this point, all the way up until the early 80s, is a branch of the RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Uh, there, uh, even at that time, there was a, a controversy as to whether uh, that should be spun off into another agency, which uh, and the RCMP brass both disdained the idea of having a security service, but even more disdained the idea of not having one, the, uh, the idea <laughs> of not having one. Right. So uh, in 1953, as he's uh, going around the country, uh, be- familiarizing himself with us, he stays for a little while in Winnipeg. And Yevgeny Brick is a bit of an impulsive character, uh, which, uh, in fact, it turns out, Ken, that people who become double agents <laughs> and this will return again. Yeah. They're they're unmanageable. They're they're yeah. people who don't follow they're within the cans. lines. They yeah. don't they don't do what they're supposed to do. And among the things he wasn't supposed to do was uh, to uh, enter into an affair uh, with the uh, married daughter of the people who ran the rooming house that he stayed with in Winnipeg. Her name uh, was Larissa Cunningham. Well, maybe that was just how is that how you blend in in Winnipeg? Um, well, uh, it turned out being a bad thing in this case. Yeah. It d- did not serve the Soviet interest. Uh, the, the 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 march of international communism was not further because, because that. it because it is it is fa- it, it is founded on love, Robin. That's why indeed love yes defeats communism. That's what happens in this case. Uh, uh, the thing about Evgeny Brick is that he is repeatedly told by various people not to reveal that he is a spy. But whenever he gets an opportunity, he does that. So back, uh, back in Moscow. I think, I think Robin, in, in spy school, that is rule one. That is rule one. So in Moscow, his KGB masters, uh, they, they train him, they ready him. Uh, the reason they have picked him, in fact, is that he grew up in Brooklyn. <laughs> well, that's practically, it's the Canada of the boroughs, I guess. It's the Canada of the boroughs. So he is already familiar with North American culture, and that's why they pick him as a spy, not his impulse control. Right. Because after his training, they tell him, don't tell anyone, especially don't tell your family. Goes home, immediately tells his wife. Mm-hmm. And then once he uh, decides that he's in love with Larissa Cunningham and wants her to divorce her alcoholic military uh member uh husband uh he confessed to her that he's i'm a soviet illegal (laughs) and she says you should turn yourself into the rcmp 
and uh, that in fact is is what he does and so he um, uh, makes it known that he is another Guzenko and uh, at this point the people running him uh, the head of counter espionage is a guy named Terry Guernsey uh, he is the aforementioned uh, former member of the musical ride and the person who should probably have wound up running the agency because he actually had Good opsec. Another theme that yeah. we'll pick up in a moment. And 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 is he long knife? He is not long knife. <gasps> uh, oh, long knife is the one who is the RCMP. Just as there's a Soviet agent who who turns himself into the RCMP, there's an RCMP constable who uh, reveals that Brick has turned to the KGB. Oh so, my God! So let me get to that. So he approaches the uh, RCMP. The uh, agent who actually handles him is. Uh, guy named Charles Sweeney. Uh, he also is a, a, a good counter-espionage guy, and he's the one that's actually running Gideon. And he uh, very cleverly uh, says, oh, well, I'm not from the RCMP. I'm from the Canadian Security Agency. This is the new ultra-secret counter-espionage agency that we now have to deal with the Soviet threat. That was good OPSEC because they were afraid, well, what if he's trying to infiltrate our operation? We'll feed him a bunch of disinformation. And uh, sort of prefigures... Uh, what actually becomes CSIS in the uh, in the early eighties? I love it. It, it. So so um so let me just because this is a great story, but I, I I feel like you are burying these nuggets on purpose. So you guys, your spy agency was was plonged into existence. Your spy agency comes from Ukbar. Is that what I'm hearing? <laughs> they, they, it's a Tulpa spy agency. Well, there is. There's not really a direct line that you can uh, you can trace to that. Uh, well, but, not uh, yet. Yes. <laughs> Not it, with that it, attitude, it, it mister. Took a long, it took a darn long time to Tulpa and a lot of bureaucratic infighting. And uh, and the revelation of a whole bunch of RCMP scandals, which would also be a completely different, uh, interesting segment. Um, right. So, I'm not so much bearing the lead as trying to get through this uh, Byzantine tale. So, <laughs> the problem in the RCMP office uh, is that the actual head of the security branch is a lifelong uh, copper, a beloved, avuncular, affable figure named James Lemieux, or Jimmy, as he is known. And he is the one who does not have good OPSEC because the there is another uh, branch of the security service called the Watcher Service. And as you can tell from the name of that, uh, their job is to go around in civilian clothes and follow the people that the security service once followed, mostly the Soviets at this point. And later, apparently, the Watcher Service became quite good and very professional. But in 1956, uh, they're kind of the rambling good old boys. And they're all, you know, former cops. And they are uh, often small town cops, usually with a high school education. And Jimmy loves to chew the fat uh, with these guys. And even though they're not supposed to come into the RCMP offices, because that would blow their cover as Watchers, uh, some of them uh, do, especially... One constable James Morrison or Longknife, and ah, finally we get Longknife Morrison, uh, whose one sterling moment in his life in World War II, uh, he was a Nazi hunter for a while and cozied up to a European prince and learned to live in splendor and met a uh, his uh, British war bride was from a high status family and expected much more than marrying an alcoholic womanizing forever indebted stealing piece of crap like uh, James Morrison. So James Morrison is uh, wildly in debt and uh, he's uh, chatting with uh, 
his uh, boss, Jimmy Lemieux, uh, for a while, and their bond is smoked meat. So, yeah, I'm not burying nuggets. I've got lots of nuggets, Ken. Yeah. They, yeah there was a particular a deli in Montreal where the, uh, the Mounties all particularly loved their smoked meat. So, uh, when there's a moment when they have to uh, find somebody to drive Yevgeny Brick, uh, alias Gideon, to his home in Montreal, uh, Jimmy says, hey, Morrison, why don't you go and you can get us all some smoked meat? And Morrison goes, oh, yeah, why, why am I taking this guy? Who's this guy? And Lemieux tells him. Morrison, heavily in debt, goes, I need money. I can turn this into money. So I'm going to go and find uh, the uh, head of espionage uh, at the uh, Russian embassy. And, of course, there's two heads of espionage in, in any Russian embassy. There's both the, the GRU one and, in this case, the KGB one. And he uh, tells him, his, guy, his name is uh, Nikolai Ostrovsky, he says, uh, I've got information that I can give you in exchange for money. And uh, they uh, want to know a bunch of stuff. They want uh, frequencies and they want uh, details of operations. Morrison doesn't have that, but he does have knowledge that their uh, illegal agent has been turned as now a double agent working for the RCMP. So at the end of uh, 55, or I guess in August of 55, uh, he is recalled uh, Brick is recalled to Russia. This is at first doesn't raise any alarms because that often happens. And uh, uh, Guernsey and Sweeney have known since May that this was coming. Uh, supposedly, he's going to be back in a few weeks. But even when a few weeks pass, they don't panic immediately because they know that the Soviets, once they get somebody back there, will sometimes keep them for a while for training or or for whatever purpose. But months pass by, and it turns out that Evgeny Brick is done for. He's been uh, revealed uh, somehow, uh, and uh, it takes a couple years uh, for them to uh, realize that uh, Morrison is is dirty. Uh, they uh, catch him, first of all, uh, embezzling funds from the watcher service. <laughs> they kick him out of the security service, but not the RCMP. They bust him back down to NCO status and stick him as a as a cop back in the prairies. And he's, at this point, still trying to get Ostrovsky to give him more money, even though he doesn't have any more secrets. Any more secrets. So he heads back to Ottawa a couple times and tries to wheedle information out of his former colleagues. And then finally, he uh, is uh, discovered. He confesses in December 57, and he is uh, then discharged from the force. Uh, he is uh not criminally prosecuted at that time. In 71, he is hauled in for more interrogation. At that point, he hints that there might be another mole in the RCMP, but that is never uh, revealed. And it's not until 1982 uh, when the uh, sort of premier journalist of security activities in Canada, John Swatsky, publishes a book and mentions in passing the story of Gideon and Longknife uh, without identifying either of them, that this comes to public knowledge and Morrison finally winds up uh, being put on trial and convicted. And so in 1986, um, he is sentenced to 18 months in prison for uh, having turned traitor. He wouldn't have done that if he hadn't foolishly gone on a famous Canadian investigative TV show called The Fifth Estate, where <laughs> he was interviewed by the appropriately named Eric Malling and received a bawling and uh, just who got raked over the coals and he didn't have good answers for anything. He was wearing a ridiculous wig that sort of inflamed things and, uh, <laughs> and got him convicted. So uh, that's the story of uh, how he got Yevgeny Brick killed, except 
1991, uh, at the British Embassy in Lithuania, uh, someone steps in and says, my name is Yevgeny Brick, and I uh, was a mole for the uh, Canadian uh, Security Service, and I would like you to arrange for me to be exfiltrated from Russia and go to Canada, where I'd like to live. So, in fact, Donald Mahar was the uh, then CSIS officer who supervised his uh, exfiltration from uh, from Russia, which was uh, still not a, a certain thing, even though everything was falling apart uh, for the old uh, Soviet system at that point. And over a lengthy debriefing, uh, they discovered that, in fact, of course, he hadn't been killed like anyone, everyone expected. He was uh, imprisoned for 15 years, and he spent a certain amount of time in Lubyanka, which is the prison attached to KGB headquarters in Moscow. And then he was sent uh, to Vladimir Central Prison, where he uh, got to spend time as cellmates with some heavy hitters of the uh, of the system. He was uh, once bunkmates with... Uh, Grigory Marianovsky, who was a KGB lab head in the 30s and uh, famous for uh, giving medical examinations in which he would inject people with poison, thereby murdering them, um, <laughs> and uh, was uh, accused by at least uh, one of the other people on this list of having been the one who killed Raoul Wallenberg. Brick also uh, spent time in jail with uh, Leonid Eitington, who was the head of the illegals program in the 30s and ran the Manhattan Project infiltration and also uh, Pavel Sudoplatov, who was the uh, guy who ran the Trotsky assassination. So he got imprisoned with some uh, some uh, pretty uh, uh, illustrious and or infamous figures. Now, now, do we do we know that he was in prison with these guys, or is this just um, uh, uh, fun Brooklyn confabulator Gideon uh, telling us famous names in the way that we, people would say, "Oh, you were in prison," you know. Was with anyone I know, and then they say, "Oh yeah, I was. I was with John Gotti. We were buddies." But Mahar was the one who conducted the debriefing. Obviously, clearly becomes very frustrated with him and doesn't uh, like him very much. But gets the degree of uh, information out of him that he uh, he treats it as credible anyway. Right. I mean, and again, I mean, I I don't know to what extent because during that brief Yeltsin window, there was all kind of stuff being released, and you know that that's basically when. Um, Sudoplatov, uh, his, uh, his quantum cellmate basically, you know, gets out and writes his autobiography about here's what it was like to be the guy that whacked Trotsky. Pretty cool. Right. And some of these, uh, periods of being a cellmate were pretty brief. And I think, yeah. I imagine that if you weren't in Lubyanka, you were in this facility, right? You weren't, right. They, they wanted to keep an eye on everybody and have them in one place. So it, it didn't, it doesn't seem there's nothing. Other than that, that's super exciting or, or amazing that it would seem. Uh, and, and there's no other reason, actually, that Brick would know enough about them in order to, to name them. Right. Yeah, certainly not in 91. I mean, yeah. Sudoplatov is not really a, a household word in America until he writes his book. So, so yeah, I mean, in theory, uh, he's been uh, hooked up with uh, sort of a, of a murderer's row of these guys. Um and I guess, like you say, either, you know, he was in Lubyanka with these guys or that Vladimir is, is a very special uh, spy prison. Uh, yeah. And he, he was he describes himself as having been in Vladimir with him. He was in right. uh, uh, isolation during his uh, uh, period in yeah, Lubyanka. Which is which is the good version of Lubyanka, quite frankly. Right. If you're in yeah. isolation. Uh, and uh, his <laughs> comparatively good fortune, I think, came from both the fact that his mother was very persistent in lobbying officials to – to not kill him. And also they 
you know, it wasn't worth the price of a bullet, I guess, at the end. that They didn't... Uh, it, it was one of the... As in so many other spy things, that killing him w- would mean admitting that they'd screwed up. <laughs> so... Uh, and he spent, uh, you know, had a period of, of freedom as a civilian in uh, in Russia, where he worked in train stations and and stuff. And and I think the other reason that they didn't execute him is that, like a lot of spy stories, this is full of tradecraft and details. And if you read the book, it's just a great sort of cross section of what the quotidian details of tradecraft were in that period. Uh, but also, he didn't wind up actually doing much, especially since. Uh, uh, and he didn't do much to benefit the Soviets when he was running that uh, agent in uh, in the Avro plant because Charles Sweeney made sure that the photos were all heavily blurred. And that was one of the things they really right. wanted to know about when they got him back is why were all those photos so badly taken, uh, agent who we trained in photography? <laughs> yeah. And he's like, ah, the Canada works on a whole different system, uh, the, the cameras. Right. Uh, and, and it prison- also underlines the the sort of low budget nature of, of actual real world tradecraft. And yeah. One right. of the big it, important goals once they recalled him to, to Russia was also we got to send people to his house to get all the photographic equipment because that's expensive and hard to get. And same with the shortwave radio. We sent him to Chicago to buy. We need that back. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that the uh, the idea that uh, spies in the real world, uh, especially in this period, uh, were heavily resourced is certainly not uh, uh, the actual yeah. uh, fact of the matter. Yeah. Uh, Vladimir prison does turn out to have been a KGB prison. And it was, according to the rules, for dangerous state criminals. So it is for your your spies, your terrorists, your Trotskyites, your uh, white Russians. Those kind of guys go to Vladimir. So it is a special prison for yes. special people. And, and it's the uh, the sort of the, the cushy white shoe prison in a whole complex of other prisons. And and so the the uh, horrors of the Soviet prison system were in other buildings in the same yeah. complex, but not <laughs> and, in the one. And, where I'm, the- and I'm sure in the basement of Vladimir was, was no, was no uh, walk on the beach either, but well, yes. yeah, yeah, because with, with these guys, especially you, and especially during the early Stalin times, and even to a lesser extent in the Khrushchev Malenkov times, you never knew when the guy in prison was going to get rehabilitated and put in charge of something again and have the ability to make your life miserable because Sudoplatov got rehabilitated, I think twice in his career before finally, um, <laughs> they, they they realized that was just uh, not a winning operation. And so you, you sort of had to treat some of these guys, like you say, with, with, uh, with the Soviet equivalent of white shoe. It, it's not the quite same reason fed, the Suicide but, Squad keeps bringing on Killer Croc, you know? Exactly. Who else just, is a giant crocodile man? Just no, him. Nobody. Yeah. Just him. Uh, well, uh, and as I said, though, it's a, there's way more detail to the story, but uh, uh, we've gone on long enough, and it's time for us to... Uh, Uh, See what might be waiting in the dead drop that is the next segment. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled 
F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on drive through Protect this podcast from betrayal by smoked meat ferrying turncoats by joining such Patreon backers as Jan Zaleski, Thomas Vallejos, John Rogers, Ross Ireland, and Todd W. Olson. The cheddar of IBM Selectric Keys, the glug of mid-priced bourbon into a jelly jar, welcome us once more to that most professional of huts, the hut in which we learn how to write good. And again, a beloved Patreon backer, in this case, Louis Sylvester, writes goodly to Robin, saying, I really enjoyed your novel, The Missing and the Lost, and would love a segment where you discuss the process you went through in plotting, writing, editing, and etc. Uh, Robin, uh, how about it? Should we give them a segment like that, or should we talk about something else? And, and guess Patreon backers pay us to ask these questions. So the novel is a continuation of a short story. So as the Yellow King role-playing game, as I mentioned before, is, is adapted not only from the four canonical stories of uh, Robert W. Chambers in his book, The Yellow King, that establish uh, the a bare suggestive outlines of uh, the Yellow King mythos, but also on a anth single author anthology that I uh, self-published uh, with the print version available from Atomic Overmind called New Tales of the Yellow Sign. And when Simon and Cat approached me and asked if I would want to adapt that into a role-playing game, uh, it seemed uh, like a pretty obvious thing to do to have a, a, another cool thing as part of this big ambitious project was to uh, write a novel uh, continuing uh, the most the characters who were most obviously ripe for continuing and that uh, were the ones in uh, the short story A Boat Full of Popes, uh, which is the one that's set in the uh, post-Castain, post-revolutionary era in America and is therefore the inspiration for the aftermath setting. And the reasons I wanted to focus on that were twofold. One, I wrote that as an iconic hero story uh, in which the main character, the technician, who is a uh, before the revolution and uh, once again is a uh, maintenance person who keeps the uh, government lethal chambers uh, running and wants to have them shut down, but uh, knows that it would be much worse if they're not kept in proper running order, uh, that uh, he and his uh, group, his revolutionary cell, are definitely set up to have uh, later adventures. And he has an iconic ethos, which as author, I do not want to quite spell out for you. Right. And so he is a character who can have uh, multiple adventures and uh, be the focus of a longer uh, novel that is um, occult horror investigation rather than straight up horror, which is harder to pull off, obviously, in, in novel form. So I wanted to continue that character. That was point one when I was starting out. And because the aftermath setting is very uh, specific and is the one that's, I think, furthest from 
uh, anything that has other media representations that I can point people toward. Uh, obviously, uh, the other ones you can sort of uh, it's a Belle Epoque thing and then add horror to it. Or mm-hmm. it's Weird War. There's a bunch of Weird War stuff. Or it's our modern era. with uh, Those are all very accessible. But this is the most specific setting and the one in which... The most alternate of the, the alternate The most alternate. And the one in which the core activity is also... And how you integrate it with the secondary activity, the subplot activity, is also not necessarily uh, the clearest thing that we could use a, a model for. Um, because the idea in Aftermath and when you're playing it is that you are trying to figure out what society is going to look like now and what your responsibility to that society is so that you have a political element as well. And so as I was uh, dreaming up the idea for the novel, I thought, oh, this also has to feature uh, the technician who from the short story you wouldn't think of as being uh, super interested in politics as it's sort of the through line uh, to the extent that there's a non-iconic transformative story is his being drawn into realizing that he has a political responsibility in electoral politics, which is something he's reluctant to engage with. So I wanted to have a a plot line there. So therefore, it's important that the mystery relate in some way to the political structure. So the the problem that they're trying to investigate uh, has to thread through that. So it's not just two compl- an A story and a B story. I wanted a an, an exciting uh, a mystery narrative that had momentum that drew you through that had strong transitions. So those had to intertwine. I wanted to make sure that the uh, lethal chambers were somehow involved in the plotting uh, because that he's the technician and that right, is the, yeah. the most chambersy part of that setting. And then I've written this, so hopefully maybe I'll be able to uh, write follow-ups and have enough of an audience to justify doing that. And so given the idea that it could be the first in a series, I wanted to make sure that the uh, antagonists in the first one are the most obvious baseline antagonists. And that would be the, the paragiometrist, the uh, evil uh, secret police uh, to continue a thread that has run through this entire uh, mm-hmm. episode uh, who are themselves now fugitives. And they're the ones who practice the uh, weird Castanite magic that kept the regime in power for so long. And so uh, once I had all of those threads, it's down to the sort of basic grunt work of making sure that all the plotting works out, that the various supporting characters are well served. Um, in this instance, I also, uh, the original short story collection, uh, the characters are well balanced uh, between uh, men and women, but there weren't um, very many women in the original in that one particular short story. So I had to, uh, I luckily noticed that one of the characters in the cell did not have a specified gender. So I could make her a woman in the, right. in the novel and then make sure also that a lot of the other important supporting characters uh, were women as well. And uh, I had an emotional personal uh, through line in there that also I don't want to spoil by discussing. So it's a matter of working out all the plot points, making sure that the mystery makes sense, making sure that the things the antagonists are doing make sense. So it's the same challenge in creating a mystery in a gumshoe scenario with going backwards from what the bad guys are doing and frontwards to what the heroes are doing to figure it out. And, uh, just making sure there's fun and creepy details along the way that are true to the genre. I think Lewis uh, picked up on the notion of the balanced team because he does continue 
uh, to say that he noticed at times the cast of heroes felt a lot like a PC group, like a player group, and wondered if you could talk about what tactics you employed in your plotting to show a Yellow King GM what an aftermath adventure might look like in action. As you alluded to, that was one of the sort of missions of the novel was to uh, give a model uh, to players in the unfamiliar or GMs in the unfamiliar uh, setting. I, uh, Lewis would be interested to hear about any gaming that made it into the story and what steps you took to cut out gaming in order to keep the plot and character development working as pros. Robin, did you, is this based at all on your game or did you write it before you were running your game? Um, I wrote it before I was running the game. It is very important to me always when, uh, when writing uh, fiction set in a game universe that I want to be able to think of it. Uh, and depending on who you're writing things for, you can get pushback on that or not. Uh, as this is a an adaptation of this world into another medium and that uh, you are not trying to slavishly uh, follow the game world. You're trying to make it work. It's an adaptation, not a translation. You don't want to hear the dice rattle in your fiction. You don't want to hear the dice rattle. In fact, sometimes things that I created in the novel, I fed back into the uh, the game book. There's an entity that they meet up with and I went, oh, this should there should be a description and stats for this in the book. Yeah, there and, should. And it's uh, cooler to do that, to, to go from the fictional presentation to the, uh, to the game version. Cause you don't, you're not tempted to go, well, and you've got to see the, sh- the shock cards that it gives out. You and just write it as you would write it in right. fiction. And then, then you adapt it. Right. That's, that's, I think the, the way to do it. So and I think it's, it's the, it's the way that you and I specifically are used to making games that we have, uh, when we have a pre-existing material, we're like, oh, make sure that this Lovecraft monster is in the game, not, oh, we have to write fiction that includes all of these Lovecraft monsters because players of the game will expect to see the Great Race of Yith, even though this isn't a Great Race of Yith story. Right. And and indeed, that was very much my process throughout the uh, creation of the Yellow King role-playing game. Uh, there, apart from the obvious Bella Pock setting, uh, that the... Uh, the wars is inspired inspired by a short story in in the book, and there are modern day stories that inspi- that inform uh, this is normal now. And the whole idea, even of having the four sequences that intertwine together and making the gameplay in a extended campaign all about callbacks and interrelationships between those things, all grew out of the fact that the original short story collection didn't have any one setting; that it had a couple of different alternate realities, it had different time periods. And uh, so the whole premise of the game comes from the short story collection, not the other way around. And I wanted to preserve that this time around uh, while uh, writing the novel. So so to the extent that you can look at the novel and go, oh, he's using bullshit detector now. It's like that's only to the extent that you can see that in any piece of detective fiction because that ability is inspired by the way detective fiction works. And so uh, it's I, I think. Uh, super, was super important to think of this as here's the media property that the game is based on rather than this is my game here's novel. The, uh, the novel that is an adaptation of the game. So, so the process um, when you, uh, cause you've written like Pathfinder novels and stuff that is straight up gaming fiction. Yeah. Now, did you find that the process of writing this novel was different is structurally or in terms of your, uh, your approach uh, to a straight up Pathfinder novel? Is, is there a difference in your mind or are you, when you're writing even a Pathfinder novel, you're saying I'm writing a novel that happens to be set in Galarian. And if any paths are found, that's just a lucky mischance. Um, 
the Pathfinder approach to how faithful the fiction had to be to the game actually changed partway through the process. So the answer is <laughs> yes and no. Yes and no. And so uh, uh, they started to get feedback from people saying, this character mentions a short story. There are no stats for a short story in Pathfinder. What's up with that? And they went more in that direction. And I really enjoyed working with uh, James Sutter, who was my uh, editor on those. And uh, the big difference, though, is that in this case, I just wrote it and gave it to Kat, who I think is planning to read it soon. <laughs> so, yeah, right, yeah. Um, it's if if you can have the thing where you're the producer and the writer, and and you're in charge. That's uh, and you're not J.J. Uh, Abrams. <laughs> well, I I, I bet J.J. Abrams prefers his level of creative freedom now. Yeah, too. Yeah, I'll, I'll, whether, I'll whether other people liked, like that thing is, is of course, I really like uh, the process on Alias a lot better. <laughs> right. Well, you, you definitely see a syndrome where the more powerful writers become, typically. Their books get fatter. And, yeah. Uh, the, the old, you know, Stephen King before and after editors. Whereas uh, the uh, the missing and the lost, in keeping with my theory that genre novels were better when they were 60,000 words instead of 90 to 100,000 words, is 60,000 words. Another high five for Robin, speaking of repeating themes. <laughs> you don't need a lot of extra stuff to keep the ending away from the uh, beginning if you, uh, if you have it shorter. Right. And also if the ending is good uh, and thought out. I, I, I like to think there's a, there's a kicker ending. Yeah. We are, well, we are, we are moving once more into the space of general advice and uh, words to live by and, and other things. And being mean to J.J. Abrams. Being mean to J.J. Abrams. Other things that signal the ending of a segment uh, approaching. Um, uh, just a few, not even 60,000 words after the beginning of the segment. So perhaps... We will enter a fourth universe just like in the mysterious Yellow King role-playing game after this commercial. What are swords without sorceries? Nada. What are sorceries without swords? Bupkiss. Thank goodness, then, for Arc Dream Publishing's Shane Ivey. Award-winning co-author of Delta Green, the role-playing game? Exactly that, Shane Ivey, who brings a haunted world alive for 5th edition fantasy with swords and sorceries. Explore crumbling civilizations separated by a dangerous sea and wild lands. Encounter surprises and exotic dangers. Seek your fortunes. Or find gruesome dads. In the tombs of forgotten gods and evils best left buried. Swords and Sorceries draws blade-slinging inspiration from ancient history and the myths and folklore that inspired the oldest RPGs. Seize all three Swords and Sorceries adventures today. The Sea Demon's Gold. The Song of the Sun Queens. The Tomb of Fire. Play in the Broken Empire or adapt them to any 5th edition campaign. Order and find bonus downloads and resources at swordsandsorceries.com. That's Swords and Sorceries from Shane Ivey. The clacking of time gears and the whirring of chronotons tell us that we're once more standing in proximity to Ken's time machine. This, of course, is the conveyance that Time Incorporated uses to send our hero back into history to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes even mutilate it. And this time around, I'm going to say that most of the missions that Time Incorporated uh, assigns are not based on a grudge. Uh, but in this case, uh, there's a bit of vengeance. No more than 30%. Uh, a bit of vengeance being taken. And it's a vengeance being taken at the state of Iowa. I don't know how much detail we're going to get into this, but Albert the Bull, 
which is Iowa's famous giant roadside attraction bull, uh, we all think it has always existed. And of course, it has always been uppermost in the minds of everyone around the world. And, and viewers can already picture good old Albert the Bull. Well, it turns out he is a recent insertion into the time stream by, uh, I think, the Iowa Tourist Board. How they got a time machine is another question that will or will not be answered. And, and by the way, that is so Iowa that they get a... <laughs> They get a time machine, and what they do is they make a big statue of a bull and put it in Iowa. Thanks, Iowa. Well done. Yeah, yeah. Stalin didn't need to get shot or anything. Good job. It may have just been the wa- the waste of chronoactive energy that time yeah. is mad I, at. I think it's I think it's slurry uh, from from all the pig farms and whatnot. Right. Yeah. And so they sent you back in time a bunch of times to remove Albert back again, but then it turned out that was you had big trouble executing that because it turned out that Albert. Uh, is a fixed point in time. And in fairness, I literally didn't try. (laughs) I just, I just went to Des Moines and drank and filed a report and it was like, Oh, so instead you just took the easier assignment then, which is to get vengeance on the state of Iowa by ensuring that the, uh, what used to be a cute novelty item in, in politics back when American politics could be merely quaint and, and no one got hurt. But recently the Iowa caucus has been a, a, a series of cluster fudges, as, as they as they say at Time Incorporated. Know, plenty of people got hurt. They just got hurt by people with Yale accents, and so we didn't care as much. Right. <laughs> yeah. But they figured, okay, the end of first-in-the-nation status, it's time, Ken, for you to remove the Iowa caucus from history. So how do you uh, achieve that, and what is its effect? Well, um, let, us, let us begin by saying that in classic Iowa style, this is caused by them being ridiculous. Uh, 1968 Democratic Convention in the great city of Chicago, uh, presided over, uh, by the beloved Mayor Daley the First, uh, of course, ended up in chaos and brouhaha, made the whole, uh, Democratic Party a hissing and a byword and not coincidentally got Nixon elected in a squeaker over Hubert Humphrey, the candidate that the Democratic Party picked and forced to onto the ticket over the objections of the radical wing of the party. And uh, everything old is new again. But the radical wing of the party got a hold of the Democratic Party machinery as a result of Humphrey's uh, ignominious loss. And uh, George McGovern, who was uh, a leader in that wing, was tasked with rewriting the party's uh, rules and mechanisms. And that began a wave of other radical seizures of power throughout various state parties. And among the state parties that had a radical seizure of power was Iowa. And they passed a new sunshine and good government law or regulation. I guess it's not a law because it's their own stupid party. But it was that every uh, convention, every nominating convention had to have a 30-day notice period because in the old days, the caucuses, which, by the way, were great, a bunch of people would be told by the chairman of the party to get together at uh, Sai's house, and we were all going to smoke cigars and drink scotch and decide who should be uh, either the delegate from our precinct or from our county or whatever to the national convention. And that would set up Iowa's uh, uh, party structure in such ways that the political party and more important, the bosses of the political party would get to decide who their candidates were. Hey, there's a smoke filled room over at size tonight. A, a literal smoke filled room and uh, caucuses remain great. They are the way to go. Uh, you don't let a bunch of randos choose things. It's just people who care enough to show up. The fact that, Iowa can't run anything is hardly an indictment of the thing they're trying to run, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, so anyway, because uh, the McGovernite wing of the Iowa party passed this sunshine law saying there has to be a month's notice so that 
all kind of strangers can show up instead of just people sinos. And uh, Iowa, it turned out, had four layers of conventions. They had a precinct convention. They had a county convention. They had a congressional district convention. And they had a state convention. And because the state convention was programmed to be somewhat early in the year in 1972, it wound up that they had to start their first bunch of caucuses, the precinct caucuses, in January so that they could have the announcement made in enough time to get to the state convention, which they, I guess, already put the down payment on the, you know, uh, on, on, on the, on the hall for, and they didn't want to lose their nine bucks or whatever it costs to rent out the, you know, Des Moines, uh, auditorium in 1972. Budgets were lower then. Yeah. Well, it, and it was Iowa. It's, it's 90 now, obviously. Um, so the, uh, so, so that basically just happened. And then they went to the, uh, national party and said, um, uh, in an excess of McGovernite zeal, we're forcing ourselves to go out in the snow in January and start nominating for president. Is that cool? And the, um, uh, the Democratic National Committee, which was getting ready to run George McGovern in 1972, saw nothing wrong with any of that plan and said, sure, knock yourself out. And so Iowa basically stumbled its way into being first in the nation. So why, why is the, so, so as, as a non-American, one of the things that has always puzzled me is the way that these two party organizations, uh, who are not obligated to one another wind up doing things in parallel. So why is there then, a Republican caucus. Yeah. Um, the Republican caucus, basically what happened is the Republican convention in Miami beach that nominated Nixon was also beset by, by hippies and problem children, not our own hippies and problem children. The Democrats loaned us some and the Republican party uh, was very worried that after president Nixon's triumphant win, that no one under the age of 40 would ever vote for the Republicans. Uh, again, a tale as old as time. So caucuses, that thing the kids like. The, no, basic. No, it wasn't caucuses that the thing the kids like. Uh, letting people who are not 65-year-old men who drank bourbon, uh, that thing the kids like. Uh, not being that. Uh, it was just an attempt to broaden the youth uh, participation in the Republican Party that caused us to adopt similar um, uh, uh, practices. And... Basically, what happened is that because I guess there's only so many auditoriums in Iowa or something, they might as well, since they're going to all the trouble and expense of having a now publicly accessible caucus for the one party, they're going to go in ahead and have them for the other party. And I think it was literally just, like I say, that kind of convenience so that they didn't have to run two sets of caucuses, you know, and, and distract the Des Moines Register. I have no idea why the Democrats and Republicans picked the same weekend, but there we are. Um, I guess part of it is so that you prevent crossover voting is so that people don't uh, sneak into the other primary and, and, and cause problems. And I guess you don't want, if you don't want them to be unstaggered so that the second one gets less attention. Right. And that's, that's another big the part. The press of it. is already bored enough being in Iowa. So yeah, they, they don't want to stick around for the, for the B ticket, whichever one it happens to be that's uh, running unopposed. So, um, so yeah, that's, uh, that, that, that's basically the story is that, uh, the Republicans followed suit and the Democrats uh, did their own primaries over caucuses and open, opened up the approaches, uh, after the 72 convention. And then that basically led to the situation where we are now, where the political parties are just addresses of convenience where you park your check, uh, before they go somewhere else and they don't have any power over nominees. Um, again, um, as you can tell. So now time incorporated, I don't think 
has an opinion as to whether caucuses are good or bad. They just know that Iowa likes them and they're mad at Iowa. Yeah, uh, right. So, uh, do you think they are, are good or bad? Uh, personally, I like them. I mean, I when I would go to caucuses in Oklahoma uh, back as a as a youth. I enjoyed it because everyone there is engaged and you're there to actually engage in political uh, talk and debate in, in a, in a proper fashion. And they're very self-selecting because if you don't care, they are boring as spit. In fact, even if you do care, they're pretty boring. And so it is, it is a way of getting people, only people who care about the party to show up and, and pick things. Now, when it was only guys I knew, it could be guys who'd be counted on to vote a certain way. And the trouble with a caucus system in a radicalized environment without other gatekeepers is that often the most organized candidate in terms of having the most uh, boots on the ground willing to stay throughout a whole meeting are the radicals. And and that is a, a, uh, a problem that is generally not down to caucusing. That's down to just um, uh, uh, the, the ending of elite gatekeeping in, in both political parties. But I think caucuses are terrific. I so love them. More I in sorrow than in anger. Exactly. That is your task to destroy them. How do you do that? Right. Uh, to destroy the Iowa caucus, I think that what you have to do, and this is getting super into the weeds, and so I'm not going to do that. By, by definition, this, right. this was going to get into the weeds. It's the right. Iowa caucus. It's the Iowa caucuses. Is you basically have to prevent the McGovern wing from taking over at least the Iowa party. Preventing it from taking over the Democratic party in 68 is possibly impossible. It, it's almost as hard as eliminating Albert the bull. Even harder because it involves hippie wrangling. So the basic system is to keep the uh, McGovern wing of the Iowa party weakened enough so that rather than a month announcement, they settle for a two week announcement. And then that moves Iowa's caucuses back into the middle of the pack somewhere in March. And no one cares uh, as they should not. And then New Hampshire, which has been first in the nation since 1952, but runs a proper primary that actually had open ballot access laws from the 40s, from that first wave of, of uh, not first wave, but that that uh, Rooseveltian wave of, of reform politics in the North has, has been first in the nation since 1952 because of a similar process, but not necessarily um, uh, because they're incompetent. It was just because they liked having it early. Uh, whereas Iowa just sort of blundered into it and now is stuck and, and legacied. And so even when the Democratic Party tries to fix things, Iowa just cries and no one wants to offend uh, at the time Tom Harkin. I don't know who the boss of Iowa is now, but, um, uh, but, but no one wants to offend Iowa and kick them off the bus. But, but it does involve basically weakening the McGovernite wing in the Iowa state party between 1968 and 1972 so that they go for a, a shorter uh, announcement window and you can just move the primary to March and then literally no one will care uh, and it will have no effect on the world because the Iowa primary, it eliminates people who are going to be eliminated anyway. No one has ever been eliminated for being, you know, too un-Iowa. Uh, I mean, Jesse Jackson got 2% famously in the 84 primaries, but guess what? Jesse Jackson had money and support and a large ideological wing and knew that there were going to be primaries in states with actual cities coming up. And he just had to hang on and, and he could do that. Yes. Well, that, that that's why the, the it seems so destroyable is that if you yeah. lose, but no one thought you would win, it doesn't count. It doesn't count. No, the, the people who, who count by losing are people who, if you thought they were going to win like uh, John Edwards, or if you scream like a crazy person during your Iowa primary loss, like Howard Dean, 
then you're then you're gone. And, and it's so utterly bizarre to think that overshouting his mic <laughs> blew his whole political career compared to what has come after that. In in, in fairness, in, in Vermont, that's how you communicate with your constituents is you yell down into the hollers. And, and and it works very well there, uh, yes. but not not apparently on the national thing. But yeah, Sometimes those when, when there's a new generation of p- yeah. political leaders, they will know how microphones work, right? But uh, John Edwards being blanked, um, and he, even he didn't get blanked; he he got barely beaten in both cases by Kerry and Obama. But uh, Iowa doesn't really do anything to drive the the ticket one way or the other. And again, you know w- when they do. Uh, usually they screw it up uh, because it's an unexpected response. And so when Santorum and Romney and Paul basically tied in 2012, it was the same giant clown car as it was in this year when Buttigieg and Sanders basically tied in, in Iowa. And so the, and, and six days after the event. Right. Yeah. And, and, and basically they step on literally the only reason to be in Iowa in the first place, which is to get a good narrative bump coming out of Iowa. But, but eliminating Iowa doesn't, there's, there's no great American statesman that we were deprived of by the, um, uh, by the, by the uh, simple farm folk of Iowa. Um, it, it's not like Birch Bay was going to really, you know, blow the doors off anybody, um, Birch Bay, I guess, uh, blow the doors off anybody, uh, after, after or before losing to Jimmy Carter in 76. Right. So it'll all go to New Hampshire, uh, which, uh, built the Trojan horse of Gossville uh, honestly without time intervention. Exactly. And therefore, uh, time incorporated does not, uh, not need to squelch them. So, so I guess what you just uh, said is that there would be no difference at life without the Iowa caucus. There would be no consequence whatsoever. It's, it's like, um, it, it would be one of those states that votes around the time Michigan does. And everyone would pay attention to Michigan because it's big and important and has a city of sorts. Um, and, uh, I would be like, you know, Hey, is I, Iowa and South Dakota? Look at that. Nine, de- nine delegates. Good, good job, everybody. You know, everyone clap your hands for the guy who campaigned on the plains. Uh, well, in that case, uh, a week from now, folks, uh, you'll be listening, uh, to this and you'll be wondering, Iowa caucus that, that never existed. Uh, so, uh, look forward to next week's uh, episode, uh, just around the time of the, uh, Iowa primary with Michigan. And on that note, Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Asphagam. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Caucus for the continued existence of this podcast alongside beloved Patreon backers. Aryan Potsma. Brendan Cloherty. Brian Malcolm. Drew Eichholz. And Daniel Markwig. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Snag our top selling design time incorporated changing history since Aristotle was a triceratops. On Twitter he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again we will talk about stuff.